And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show today. It's Thursday. Thank goodness. Getting ready to wrap up this week. It's been a tough one already yesterday uh, with markets sliding sharply after uh, basically a lot of bad news coming out of retailers. We talked a little bit yesterday about Target, Walmart, these other retailers. And of course, these make up the biggest, you know, really the kind of they're the bellwethers of consumer spending and and what's happening in the economy. And just really telling us a lot that the economy is slowing a lot faster than we expected. Consumers are beginning to contract. High inflation, not a surprise here. Interestingly though, inventory is also building at these companies. Uh, Walmart, Target both reporting uh, concerns about inventory levels because again, as more inventory exists, that means that ultimately as as demand slows, that you're going to have lower prices. So inflate, so this inflationary pressure, more signs coming out of retailers that we've likely seen the peak of inflation. And that's also been translated over into the bond market as well. We've seen a lot of flows going into bonds here lately, suggesting that we're likely going to see a peak of inflation here, inflation coming down as the economy slows. The big question, of course, is we're all pretty sure a recession is coming. The question is, is, is it already here? Um, you know, the, the, what Target and Walmart are telling us is real-time data about what's happening with the consumer. By the time the National Bureau of Economic Research actually dates the recession, it'll be far too late. The recession will be mostly over by the time that happens. And that's typically the case because they've got to wait for a lot of the data to come in. A lot of that data is lagging data. So by the time the National Bureau of Economic Research actually dates a recession, it's generally after the fact. But markets are telling you that we may be in that process right now and maybe not in a recession just yet, but could be getting there sooner rather than later. Now, this this morning, or well, let's talk about yesterday action uh, first. Yesterday, over the last four days, the market had had this nice little rally going. We rallied right to the 20-day moving average, and more importantly, we rallied back to those support levels that had been holding in place very well ever since really kind of January, February of this year. Uh, we came down and had set these lows back in February with the Russian invasion, retested those lows again several times here in April, finally broke through that in May, got below that resistance, that support level, rallied exactly to it uh, on uh, Wednesday, sorry, on Tuesday, rallied right to it on Tuesday's rally failed yesterday fairly miserably and gave up not only yesterday's gains, uh, Tuesday's gains, but also all the gains that we really picked up this week entirely wiped out in one day yesterday. In fact, yesterday was the largest single day decline that we've had since March of 2020. It was, you know, a 4% decline in the S&P is a very big move for one day. And it was just this kind of slow bleed all day long. It wasn't a dramatic plunge. It wasn't this kind of this massive panic selling rush to get stuff out of portfolios. It was just all day long, just this gradual uh, gradual selling process of, of capital all, all day yesterday. And again, I just kind of weighed on the markets. Um, 
we talked about our MACD signal yesterday, our moving average convergence divergence signal that's saying that was very close to a buy signal. That turned lower. It didn't cross yesterday. Um, all, the over, all the oversold indicators that were starting to kind of recover a bit, those are now back to oversold conditions again. So again, all that work the market had been doing over the past four days gave up yesterday. And again, this has a lot to tell us about what's going on with the markets. This morning, futures are pointing lower again. Not surprising. People got home yesterday, said, oh my God, what just happened? And, you know, loaded up a bunch of orders last night to, tra to transact sales this morning. So we're going to get some more downward pressure on the markets this morning. Now, the question will be whether or not we can hold these lows that we had put in last Friday, and that's going to be really kind of the critical level. We're going to be back into three standard deviation moves, you know, below the 50-day moving average. Again, I know technical mumbo-jumbo we talk about a lot. Uh, just simply, look, the market's, the market's really stretched to the downside. That's all there is. And, and the big question, something that I'm going to talk about with Michael Leibowitz this morning, is, you know, look, the Federal Reserve has been talking a tough game about hiking rates. Walmart and Target are telling us there's a bigger problem coming economically, and that may really limit the Fed's ability to hike rates here, uh, as even though they want to combat inflation, the market may be doing the work for them. But the other side of this is we just had a, a just a massive amount of selling here, particularly over the last month or so, as this market has been declining since the March peak. And so April, May, and we're going to wrap up the month of May here pretty quick. And it has just been an onslaught of selling now for the last, you know, really for the last month and a half. And the question is really is how much more selling is there left to go? You know, we, we you know, there's a, a function of just you know, amount of liquidity in the markets and how much it can get sold. And the question is, is are, how far have we worked through that process or is there a lot more to go, right? Is there a lot more selling that needs to be done before we get to an eventual bottom in the markets? And we're gonna to get to a bottom eventually. And the question is just, where is it? Is it here or is it 10% lower? Is it 20% lower? And it just depends on your personal views about, about where we are. You know, there's a lot of people betting this market's got another 20 or 30% to go. Maybe the case, there was an article out uh, yesterday talking about another 30% to the downside. Hey, it could certainly be a possibility. There's also some possibilities out there that says, hey, we're fairly close to forming a bottom. Valuations have come down a lot. You know, could we be setting a bottom here sooner rather than later? I don't think so just yet. I think, you know, I think that's possible, but I do think there's more work to do in the markets. Again, we had a lot of exuberance in the markets last year. Earnings estimates still have not come down dramatically, although analysts have finally started waking up as of yesterday <laughs> and started ratcheting down earnings for companies. So again, as earnings come down and estimates come down, that's going to help start this process of working out through the bottom of this. But, but again, there is more risk to the downside. One thing we're watching here are these recent lows. We raised a little bit of cash yesterday, and if we break these recent lows, we're going to raise some more cash. And so that's just really kind of the, the process here of working through this. But again, as we talked about um, previously, and the one thing we were catching a lot of grief on, of course, is talking about fixed income because, well, you know, bonds weren't working there for a while because, again, as we talk about positioning and, and markets and what was working, bonds had had a very, very tough year this year. 
because of the Fed hiking rates, because of anticipation of higher rates. Bonds had a very sharp rally yesterday, have been forming a very nice base here, starting to turn up. We're starting to get some positive uh, price momentum going into bonds. But again, that's not surprising now that there's talk about potentially a recession. These earnings reports from retailers suggesting that consumers are indeed contracting. That is deflationary in nature. That is a benefit to bond prices. And again, that's why we're starting to see that non-corollary action between stocks and bonds, exactly what's supposed to happen when stocks are getting hit, bonds are picking up some of the slack, finally getting that correlation to come back into play. Okay, we'll come back. A lot of stuff to get into this morning. Markets, economy, earnings, where we are, what happens next. We'll get into that, talk about it with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com some people don't know about bonds i am told this is a bond i've never seen a bond before i never owned a bond in my portfolio it is terrifying get to know bonds in our next free lunch and learn thursday june 2nd with richard rosso danny ratliff and special guest lance roberts register now at realinvestmentadvice.com the thing about bonds with ratliff rosso and roberts realinvestmentadvice.com the real investment show So welcome to today's edition of the show. So yeah, yesterday, pretty tough day in the markets. Uh, S&P down about 4% yesterday. S&P and NASDAQ on track for seven straight weeks of losses, which is, you know, pretty incredible. Um, it's a fairly long stretch without, you know, kind of a decent counter trend rally that you kind of see throughout history, but not entirely uncommon. Dow's on track for eight straight losing weeks right now. And again, it's interesting because, you know, we, we started out this week, you know, had a couple of days of rally, had a big rally day on Wednesday, Thursday, complete. Sorry, uh, let me back that up. I'm, I'm off a day here. Monday and Tuesday had decent rallies. Wednesday, um, you know, just basically, you know, gave it all back up. So this morning we're going to be down again at the open. Looks like uh, about one, one and a half percent on the indexes this morning as, again, kind of. A lot of people got home last night, saw what happened in the markets, and you know, are just like, I quit, and <laughs> they're just selling into the markets now. Um, you know, and so the question really becomes here: you know, what's the, you know, what, where do we go to from here? What happens next? And you know, this is where, again, as we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, you've got to be a little bit careful here because this is the point where markets can do things that 
can frustrate you to the greatest degree. Um, you know, on both sides, by the way. I mean, if you're if you're betting on a big rally, you know, you don't get one. Or if you're betting on this market completely falling apart, you go short on everything or go into cash. That's about the time the market tends to rally. The market tends to do exactly the opposite of what you tend to be thinking it'll do. And that's just what the market is very, very good at doing. Um, but also, you know, the market's also telling us that there's a probability that a recession is likely coming sooner than, you know, a lot of the media analysts expect. You know, a lot of media, a lot of media uh, channels and, and, you know, kind of mainstream Wall Street outlets talking about, oh, we don't have a recession. There's no recession in sight. You know, recession indicators aren't even showing up yet. You know, the problem with a lot of that stuff, it's lagging data. And by the time it shows up, it's too late anyway. And so that's, you know, so you find out, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm in the middle of a recession. And then somebody tells you about 10 months from now, oh, yeah, that recession, it started, you know, in May of 2022, right? And and that's, at that point, it's just too late to do anything about it. So this is where we've got to be a little bit more, you know, attuned to the data, what's going on and trying to navigate it. And look, it's not easy. Uh, this has been a very challenging market this year. It's been emotionally draining on on many fronts. And that drag psychologically is what leads people to making the most investment, you know, these kind of poor investment decisions over time that get them to buy high and sell low. And, and look, we, we had a lot of that buying high going last year. You remember all the, all the, uh, the memes we had going on, right? You know, there is no alternative and, you know, BTFD. And, you know, it was all easy when markets are going up. Now it's, you know, GTFO, get me out. <laughs> You know, and this is kind of where we are now. So, so a couple of things to get into this morning. First of all, uh, I want to step back to the bigger picture um, to kind of frame this conversation. And Jerome Powell out yesterday talking about needing to hike rates. He's you know focused on fighting inflation. I think Walmart and Target are giving you very clear indications that the inflation push is probably over. And there's a bigger problem coming of a recessionary drag, which will lead to disinflation. So the Fed is so far behind the curve now, not sure exactly just how much room they have to hike rates here. Michael Leibowitz joining me this morning. What do you think, Mike? Uh, yeah, I think this is a very unique situation that we're in and one that, that most investors are not used to. The problem is, is inflation is running 8%. And, you know, maybe inflation comes down to five, six, seven percent, but that's still extremely high. So I feel like the Fed is handcuffed. The Fed is solely fighting inflation. The Fed sees that that they're the Fed. I bet half the Fed, Fed members think that we're in a recession. Right. It may very well be, like you said, Lance, that when the NBER goes and dates this recession, if we're going to be in one, it could have happened already. Uh, but that's kind of regardless. The Fed's tone has not changed. Their rhetoric is not wavering. They yeah, are but, but again, uh, rhetoric. But rhetoric's one thing. That's not my question. My question isn't no, their rhetoric. It. My question is: is their ability to hike rates? And again, if the economy goes into a recession, oh. you're going to have disinflation occurring much quicker than expected. You're going to be on a recessionary binge very quickly. And that's what Walmart and Target are telling us: that the consumer's strapped. And if the Fed is hiking rates, you're going to break something very quickly. And that's all fair. But Fed funds don't really matter all that much. That's just overnight borrowing. Mm -hmm. What matters are the five and 10 year rates, mortgage rates, auto loan rates, credit card loan rates. And that's where rhetoric 
is raising rates. Rhetoric is why 10 years are over 3% or near 3%. And that's what's slowing down the economy. That is what's going to start, is dragging on inflation and will start pushing it lower. So I think the Fed thinks that they can use rhetoric, not necessarily ultimately Fed rate hikes, to do their job for them. And that's that's kind of where I'm going. So the Fed is keeping up the rhetoric. Now, everyone's scared the Fed's going to raise rates, but the market has priced it in. I, I think the threat is if the Fed gets up, you know, starts raising rates and we start getting up to where we think they're going to go, what's priced into the market, and then they say, we're going to keep going. That, I think, is very unlikely because I think somewhere between here and there and much closer to where we're at today, mm -hmm. the markets break, the economy breaks. Yeah, the financial well, stability problems start emerging. And I think, look, I think the ten-year Treasury is already even telling you that because we were at, you know, you know, three point, you know, one, three, almost three point two percent on the ten-year Treasury just a couple of weeks right. ago, and we're at two point eight this morning. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but that's actually a pretty big move for yields in such a very short time to go from three point two ish to you know two point eight ish in just a few days. And you know right. we're starting to see a lot of money flows going into Treasury bonds right now, looking for that safety trade as as people are just you know like I don't want to be in the market. And again, as I said in the open this morning, it you know it's interesting to start to see that all of a sudden that non-correlation between bonds and stocks are coming back. So bonds, I think you know are, are starting to already tell you the story that you know they're concerned about economic risk at this point. Right. Right. We are seeing a pretty big divergence the last few days where bonds are doing well when stocks do poorly. Prior, it was bonds would do poor and stocks would kind of follow. And that makes sense, right? Higher yields are bad for the economy and then bad for stocks. But now we're seeing, I think, the bond market is starting to say, let's hold off a second. We've done the Fed's job. Mm -hmm. We have turned this into a recession or, or very slow economic growth. And inflation is may have may have peaked last uh when was that two weeks ago a week ago yep. whenever we had our last set of cpi numbers the inflation numbers came down we talked about this they didn't come down as much as expected but they came down and what matters is that they're turning and starting to head the other way and we're going to get a whole boatload of data we had the empire state index uh i think that was monday mm -hmm. also had lower prices still very high you know we're not saying that prices aren't high we're just saying a direction is changing. Now you start factoring in the news we just got. And I thought thought it was I think it was Walmart. Mm -hmm. That was probably the most telling on the inflation supply line front. Basically, their inventories grew at the fastest rate ever in their history. And they're well up. The rate of growth is well above anything else else. And what the CEO said was that that they are going to basically have to slow down their orders and they can reduce their inventory. That's a classic recession cycle. What happens is that 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 retail gets ahead of itself. They order too many goods. Consumers don't want them. So they stop ordering new goods, which then spreads to the manufacturing sector. And you get a slowdown until the, the economy can redistribute and get back into better balance between supply and demand. And Walmart said that pretty clearly, that that's what they're going through. And so it's not just Walmart, right? Walmart is going to have to stop ordering a lot of different things or slow down the orders for a lot of different things. So so the supply lines are going to are going to get better much quicker. 
and the manufacturers are going to suffer. And we've talked about this. Those manufacturing reports have been weak for the last month or two. So while this is news to us, this is not news to them, and this is not news to Walmart. Walmart right. knew what was going on in April and, and March, and the manufacturers were feeling the new orders. New orders in some of these manufacturing indexes are dropping like a rock. Well, so, so this has been going on for two months, and that's why we always say you've got to try to find that real-time data, those surveys, because that's what's really going on in the economy. By the time you get Walmart's earnings, you are, you know, we're talking about earnings from January, February, and March mm -hmm. that are we're just getting today. We're we're learning about January, and February. Right. And again, you know, we again we 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 have been talking about this. We've been talking about new orders slowing down, and this is why we were talking about hey, inflation's likely to peak, and you know, this is going to be you know uh, you know a sign of the economy slowing, particularly as all this liquidity comes out of the markets from you know checks to households and all that. You know, this was this was always the eventual outcome. And, you know, everybody was treating the growth that we had in the economy last year as this organic resurgence of the economy. And it was anything but that case. And now we're going to play, you know, we're going to play payback. And, and, you know, again, nothing should be a surprise here. What is surprising is how far behind the curve the Fed has gotten themselves. You know, they should have been hiking rates last year. As you know, all this stuff was starting to come through the pipeline. As soon as they saw inflation spiking up, they should have been hiking rates then to try to keep it from getting out of control. They had to know that all that monetary input was going to translate into higher prices, higher inflation, particularly against the backdrop of a broken supply chain that was going to get fixed ultimately. And you know, now the the question and, and the problem for them is is what do you do? Because if you're going to try to hike rates after the market's already done your job for you. Now you've got no policy tool left for the next recession. And that appears, as I said, when you take a look at what Mike said with the manufacturing reports, you take a look at what's going on with Walmart and Target and others, it's clear a recession is likely either here or coming very soon. Be right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com some people don't know about bonds i am told this is a bond i've never seen a bond before i never owned a bond in my portfolio it is terrifying get to know bonds in our next free lunch and learn thursday june 2nd with richard rosso danny ratliff and special guest lance roberts register now at realinvestmentadvice.com the thing about bonds with ratliff rosso and roberts realinvestmentadvice.com you're listening to the real investment show Horror has returned. No, I said horror, not that other word. Friends <laughs> looking me. at me with a shock of horror. <laughs> that would be ho. <laughs> oh, God. 
Yes. Horror has returned to Wall Street trading desk and portfolios of the average investor. Uh, this is the first line of an article out this morning by Yahoo Finance. Wednesday sell-off really seems like a chain reaction with a weakness in retailers feeding into fears. The consumer may be slowing, that inflation remains a problem, that inventories are too high, and this could pressure profit margins. And this was all from Keith Lerner from Truist. And, you know, it, it's a true point. Now, here's the interesting thing about this is that no matter what media outlet you look at this morning, it's doom and gloom everywhere this morning every media headline is pretty much recession coming you know bear market you know all this right i mean it's just very very negative sentiment and again not surprisingly after the action not only that we've had you know earlier this year but just over the just yesterday in, in particular and these these very sharp declines and they certainly weigh on investor sentiment and again, it's, it's a very marked change to this time last year, because if you remember this time last year, it was, you know, by, you know, the, the companies with the absolute worst fundamentals, you know, we're buying AMC and GameStop because they're going to the moon and these are fundamentally, you know, you know, you know broken companies in a lot of, a lot of manners. And, you know, the, we had the whole Wall Street Reddit bets thing going on with the retail traders. Retail traders were leveraging up, you know, taking out loans on credit cards and margin accounts, et cetera, to increase their trading leverage. And, and Mike and I were both writing articles about the eventual outcome of this. And it's important to keep this all into context is that, you know, we did have this very exacerbated move in the markets last year. We were up 26% on the S&P last year. A lot of that driven by leverage and speculation and, and and valuation increases to levels that normally shouldn't exist for a lot of these companies. And so all we're doing right now, and again, it, it feels terrible, and it's certainly painful to watch your portfolio not go in the right direction, but all we're doing is resetting some of those excesses and putting markets back into a more stable footing. It's not fun by any stretch of the imagination, but that's what's going on. And whether or not we have a recession is just part of the equation, but it's, it's just a function of the process of going from a liquidity-infused monetary intervention, you know, growth cycle in the markets to a reversal of that. And, and again, if we go back to, to 2019 as an example, in 2019, Mike and I were talking both about, you know, overvaluation in the markets. We'd had a very sharp run up in the markets from the 2017 uh, tax cuts that had passed and the markets had run up sharply. And uh, after the 2018, you know, kind of debacle with the Fed trying to taper their balance sheet and hike interest rates. And they reversed all that in December of 2018 after we'd gone down about 20 percent. Then we had this very sharp rally in 2019. And we were talking about overvaluation as we got into early 2020. So January, February, we were writing some articles called This is Nuts, right? The markets have just gone straight up. And you know, we had the QE, we had the Federal Reserve in the background bailing out hedge funds with a, a kind of a shadow QE. And we were talking about this excess valuation then. And we were talking about speculation then and a, and a melt up. And then March of 2020 comes. And then 
So at that point, we were already starting to talk about the potential for a recession back in December, January, and February because we'd already gone through a decade of growth in the economy, very long in the tooth. And again, a very long span between 2008 and 2020, a very long span of time without having a recession. Average, recessions happen on average about every eight years. And those those kind of spans between recessions have been getting a little bit longer beginning starting in 1990. As the Federal Reserve really got more active in the markets, we began to expand these periods between recessions that we would have in the economy. But recessions are a normal part of the economic cycle. We can we can lengthen the business cycle. We can do things to extend the business cycle, but you can't repeal recessions. That's just going to happen. And the reason I'm telling you this whole story is because after March of 2020, which was a recession, but it was one that was self-induced. And of course, then immediately we hit this recession with $5 trillion worth of liquidity in various forms. Not surprisingly, you have a big resurgence in growth. But what's interesting now is that we're going to potentially have a very short period between recessions. And this, and, and we're, ex, and, and instead of lengthening business cycles, which we were doing previously, we're now compressing those business cycles between recessionary periods, recoveries, and the next recessions. And this is, and, and if this process continues, this could make it a very challenging decade for investors going forward, particularly as, you know, the the problems that were created with the shutdown and these monetary interventions and whether or not the Fed can actually do what they say they're going to do in terms of trying to bail out the economy and the efficacy of QE programs and will the Fed and will the government come back in to do more modern monetary theory or did they learn their lesson? During the last during this inflationary span, will they will before they start issuing out checks again, will they go, hey, you know what? Last time we did this, it really wasn't Russia. It was us. <laughs> we did it. Uh, so will they be reticent about issuing checks? I don't think so. I think they're going to issue checks just as fast as they can as soon as they have the opportunity. But, you know, these are the things that we have to consider with portfolios and where we are now, the challenges as investors has now become much more complicated than it was before. And, you know, this is going to be something we're going to be dealing with here for a while. But my question to you here is this, is that, you know, as, as you know, we talk about the markets, I mean, tons of negative sentiment everywhere right now. I mean, you look at media headlines, you look at, you know, CNBC right now, markets in turmoil. <laughs> you posted a chart recently in our daily commentary that every time that CNBC runs, uh, you know, markets in turmoil, markets tend to rally after the fact. So, you know, right. there's so much negative sentiment. It's 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 you know, you have to almost ask your ask yourself, you know, just how much more negative can we get? I mean, if we look at sentiment indicators, uh, you know, uh, professional investor sentiment positioning. They're all at levels that are normally kind of at bear market bottoms, you know, not the beginning of a bear market. They, they are, but maybe it doesn't matter. I was speaking with a friend last night and he said, hey, when's my 401k going to stop going down? And I said, well, what drives the markets? And he he's a lawyer. He doesn't you know, he doesn't really know this stuff. And he was battling on about this, that and this, you know, all these other things. I said, well, what about the Federal Reserve? What about the government? 
He goes, yeah, I'm sure those things, they have something to do with it too. I said, no, they have everything to do with it. Over the last 30 years, they have co-opted, co, they have taken over. Co-opted is a good word. No, co-opted is a good word. Co-opted? Yeah, go they ahead. Co-opted. Corrupted. Co-opted both the business cycle and market cycles. So you look back at what happened 2019, 2020, 21, 2020, the second half of 2020 and 21, the, you know, we're running $5 trillion fiscal, uh, fiscal deficits, and the Fed was printing money on a scale we've never seen before. And that's part of your business cycle. Why were prices going up? It had nothing to do with valuations. It had nothing to do with any of the traditional stuff. It had to do with the Fed and the government. Why? So I so I said to him, well, I'll tell you when your 401k will stop going down. If you tell me when the Fed is going to stop raising rates and stop doing QT and the government will start borrowing more money. And that's August. unfortunately. And I'm trying to get my head around this to write an article because I think it'll be a really good article. It's abstract. But at the end of the day, the market trend and the, the shape of the trend, whether it's really vertical or whether it's flattening or whether it's coming down, has so much to do with the Federal Reserve and the government. And if you understand, have a rough idea of what that trend shape looks like, it's very helpful in your head. And right now, there's no relief from the government. There's not going to be spending. There's not going to be spending before the election just because of politics. The Fed is hell-bent on doing what they're doing. They haven't backed down at all, despite the, the both the stock market and the bond market. So until some of those start changing, the trajectory is going to be lower. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be dropping 100, S&P is going to be dropping 100 points a day. There's going to be nice rallies in there. It, you know, markets kind of stair-step both up and down. They get too oversold. They get too overbought within these trends. So you can try to figure out these trends and understand if we're on the overbought or oversold side. But but at the end of the day, if you want to know what's going on, think about the Fed. Think about the government and what they're doing, because like you said, Lance, they mm -hmm. they have a lot more control over both the business cycle and market cycles. And it's true. And, and, you know, and, you know, but back to the, you know, the sentiment indicators in particular, you know, it's not different this time. And that's the important thing is. You know, we always come to these rationales that, you know, this time is different because of A, B, or C. But throughout history, when you have this amount of negative sentiment, it, regardless of any other event that is going on in the markets, you are typically closer to a low in the market, not the beginning of a bear market. And this is going to be the big question. This is what we're going to find out is, you know, is this time actually different? And, and look, I don't have the answer. Mike doesn't either. But there's certainly some cases to be made that suggest that a lot of the selling has been done, at least temporarily, and or maybe not. And maybe Mike's right, and this is going to keep going lower, and we'll find out. So we'll be back after the break to wrap up the show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Some people don't know about bonds. I am told this is a bond. I've never seen a bond before. I never 
own the bond in my portfolio? It is terrifying. Get to know bonds in our next free Lunch and Learn, Thursday, June 2nd with Richard Rosso, Danny Ratliff, and special guest Lance Roberts. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. The thing about bonds with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. So very interestingly, we've talked we've talked about ESG before here on the show. This in you know kind of these new metrics of environmental, social, and governance calculations. Again, you know, as investors, when Mike and I were growing up in the markets, we used to judge companies based on you know valuation, sales, revenue, uh, you know, debt levels, <laughs> kind of these definable metrics about the health <laughs> of a business. And, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, I don't know, it was simplistic analysis back then to look at a balance sheet and an income statement, a cash flow statement and go, yeah, this company makes money or it doesn't. So, you know, but now we have to, you know, create all these uh, new measurements to judge companies by. And, and so we can, you know, kind of do our virtue signaling and make sure that we're investing in companies that match our virtues, right? And make and make sure that companies like BlackRock can profit from. <laughs> well, hold make, on, just let me. Let, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just let me get there real I quick. We're, we're, you're jumping <laughs> the gun. <laughs> but so we talked about this before, and and Mike's right. Uh, you know, the 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 issue is is these measures of environmental, social, and governance. You know, what do they actually tell you, and are they and are they even measurable, or are they just really? Um, a sticker that we're sticking on stuff to make you feel better. Before we get into that, just I want to remind you of one thing. If you buy Apple stock today because you want to be, you want to, you know, show your virtue and you want to buy a company that's ESG friendly and Apple's in the top list of 100 ESG companies. Great. You go out today and buy Apple stock. It does nothing for the environment. Because Apple doesn't even know you bought the stock. <laughs> it's not changing one thing about how they're running their business, that they're running slave labor in China. Doesn't affect that at all, right? They don't even know. All you're doing is trading shares with somebody else. You gave cash to another holder of Apple stock who just sold you their shares, and they've now got your cash, and they're going to go buy a new car with it. That's all that you've accomplished. You're not, you're not helping the environment. You're not creating any better environment for the world, you're not, you know, reducing climate change by buying Apple shares. So the whole idea of ESG investing is flawed to begin with. And, you know, again, you know, for all these ESG investors that were doing this last year, like, oh, you know, can't own oil companies because those are not ESG friendly. Well, that whole thing just fell apart when <laughs> energy stocks have now run up 44% and the market's down, right? You know, this is... You know, at the end of the day, it all comes down to where the money flows go. But I thought it was interesting, and, and I'll, I'll let Mike weigh in on this. Uh, Tesla has now been kicked out of the top 100 ESG companies because of basically disputes over racism, um, pollution, um, running, you know, how they're running their company on a governance basis. 
And it is interesting, of course, because now Elon Musk has tweeted back that S&P Global, the, the company that issues out these ESG rankings, have lost all credibility by kicking Tesla out of the top 100 companies. And guess who is in the top 100 companies? ExxonMobil. <laughs> Those evil oil companies in there. So, uh, but Mike, uh, you know, now uh, I'll throw it over to you. You know, you so, know so ESG I'm, is is this is this new invention for people to invest in, but is not really performing very well this year for a variety of reasons. So it's funny you brought that up because I saw his tweet as well, and I thought I'd tweet back at him. Shockingly, <laughs> he never replied to my tweet. But because you don't own a Tesla. Like <laughs> He's tweeted something like, why is Exxon higher up in the ESG ratings than Tesla? Some, something to that effect. Right. And I just simply wrote back to him, you may want to look at where you get your medals for your cars from. No. You know, it, it's, not, it's not apparent what, what ESG really means. Like you said, Apple. Apple's using slave labor, more or less slave labor in China. Tesla may run off electricity, but just because you don't see the coal and the natural gas being used to fuel that to create that electricity doesn't mean it's any better or the metals and the horrific mining, mm -hmm. what they do to the earth. And, and, you know, there's some slave labor involved in Africa, too, to get some of these metals yeah, out of cobalt. the ground. Yeah. So, you know, you can't just assume that because a company has a, a quote unquote green product that it's being produced in a green way or that the company is running in a green manner, how they, you know, or even how they treat their employees. And there's a whole host of things. And look, at the end of the day, I don't believe in ESG investing. I think what you should do is try to make as much money as you can investing. And then Go plant if you want to help a cause, <laughs> help a cause. Yeah. Give your Go. money. To an environmental cause. Yeah, or go, or, or go out and plant trees or, you know, uh, go clean up your neighborhood, uh, recycle more. I mean, yeah, you know, there's so many things that you can do if you're truly climate conscious. Invest your money in climate, you know, climate issues that you can do. Plant trees. Invest in a company directly. You know, there's tons of, of small companies out there that are going out to do things to improve the environment. Go invest money directly with that company and get on their board of, of, of directors and get involved in that company. Go to work for that company and invest in that company. If you want to, if you want to invest and make change, that's how you do it, not by investing in the stock market. Right. Buying Apple shares from Lancerai isn't going to help the economy. Or the environment. It, it's, it's, right. It, it's kind of like used cars. Yeah. Use, Ford doesn't care if I buy a used car from Lance. It doesn't affect them at all. We're not we're not helping Ford or hurting Ford. So so try to separate out your money and your wealth from your your virtues, what you want, how you want to help people. And I think you can accomplish a lot more on both sides. Well, if you kind of have that in mind. Yeah, and I think I think the biggest point is the one you brought up earlier. And we we wrote an article on this called the the Great Wall Street Money Heist. It's on the website at, at realinvestmentadvice.com. But again, Mike and I went and we compared the S&P 500 index to BlackRock's uh, ESG fund. And in the top 10 holdings, there's only one difference in the top 10 holdings. Uh, they all own it all owns Apple, Microsoft, ExxonMobil, Google, right? Those are in the top 10 holdings. The only difference between the S&P top 10 and BlackRock's top 10 is that BlackRock shares are in the top 10 holdings, which means that every time you buy the BlackRock fund or the BlackRock ESG fund, you're also buying BlackRock shares, which magically 
drives their stock price higher and makes you know Larry Fink a lot richer. <laughs> and you know, so there's and you know there's, there's no there's no benefit there. And then uh, then of course they also charge you four times as much for exactly the same performance you get out of buying a S&P 500 index fund has exactly the same top 10 holdings at one quarter of the cost. And so to your point, hey. Mike, they, you know, this whole ESG label is really nothing more than a, a money scam for Wall Street to sell product to people who want to invest their virtue and that don't really understand that it does nothing for the environment. Right, right. You you raised the point I was just going to try to bring up that they charge a lot more for these funds. The expense ratios are a lot higher. But at the same day, at the end of the day, it's the same computer running a very similar al algorithm as their S&P, their regular S&P 500 ETF. Their expense to run an ESG fund versus an S&P fund is probably pocket change, if at that. Yet, right. because your virtue signaling, you get to pay four times as much. You know, like a lot of things in life. Yeah. It costs a lot to, to <laughs> signal your virtues. That money could be saved and actually spent helping helping causes that you want to help. Yeah. Well, and again, this is and, and this is going to be something. Look, and, and this isn't the first time, you know, that we've been through this. Mike and I both remember back in the late 90s, and we've talked about this before. Back in the late 90s, it was all about sin stocks. Uh, we weren't supposed to invest in anything that was involved in gambling, tobacco, alcohol, pornography, right? That's, those were the off limits of investing. And so we were all going to invest in everything but sin stocks. And this was the big Wall Street push. And so we started having all these funds come out that were sin stock free. And then over the course of the next four years, sin stocks outperformed everything. So, you know, and, and then and again, that that whole mantra died because ultimately what happens is, is that investors do what? They're going to chase the money. And, you know, last year I'm all about, you know, you know, you know, investing in electric cars and things like that to, to fix the economy or fix the environment. But as soon as oil stocks take off out of the depths of their depression and have just been accelerating higher, all of a sudden it's like environment. What? I'm investing in oil companies now. I'm I'm an oil guru. And everybody on Twitter now is an oil company guru. And, you know, and this whole idea of climate change has slowly died its death in, in social media. And that's ultimately going to be the impact that that happens is that we'll see money flows chase returns. And that's what always happens over time. And at the end of the day, when it all comes down to it, it's all about fundamentals. It is ultimately, and, the, and you're watching this happen in real time right now in the NASDAQ and in ARC funds and all this, all these companies with no fundamentals aren't working. At the end of the day, if you buy fundamentals, regardless of how the company operates, you're gonna, you're, you'll make money over time. Mike, uh, right. closing thoughts. ES, ESG will be like a meme stock, a SPAC. It'll be like the nifty 50 from way back. It'll be mm -hmm. like a dot com. It'll be a fad that ran its course. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, get by the website. We have a lot of stuff getting posted there. Mike's article from yesterday is up. And also check out SimpleVisor.com. That's our research platform. We've got a lot of new stuff coming that way. All the stuff that we're doing internally uh, for managing our portfolios, et cetera, we're slowly migrating over to our digital platform. So lots of great tools coming your way to help you understand markets, 
rotations, how things work in the markets, uh, you know, uh, how to do research on your own stocks. That's all there for you, simplevisor.com. Try it for 30 days free. And also get our daily commentary. If you subscribe at the website, it comes out every morning at 7.30. Just a quick two, three-minute read on what's happening in the market, what earnings and economic data is coming out, market trading updates, etc. It's all there in our daily commentary every single day of the week. There's just a ton of stuff at realinvestmentadvice.com. I mean, just tons. You just got to go check it out. Get our newsletter and more. It's all there. Realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow. Monday, Monday, Monday. Always Sunday. In the rich man's world. While the things I could If I had a little Monday. It's a rich man's world. It's a rich man's world.